Good morning. I want to say to our class here and to our class around the world, Happy New Year. Zu unseren Freunden in Deutschland, Frohes Neue. And that's Happy New Year to our friends in Germany. All right, so let's, uh, let's begin class with prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We thank you for the year you've brought us through. And while this year has had its trials and, and stresses, uh, we, we thank you for your grace. May we learn from the lessons of this past year and as we move forward in this year, may we rededicate ourselves to your cause, to, to the Great Commission, to taking forward the truth about you. And may this year you pour out your spirit and your, your angelic host to open avenues so that the message will break down barriers, go forward, lighten the world with your, so that we can see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number two in our quarterly, Jesus Wept, the Bible and Human Emotions. And the lesson title is Divine Provision for Anxiety. Somebody want to read the first paragraph in uh, lesson which starts, Scripture is filled? Scripture is filled with verses containing words such as afraid, anxiety, anxious, fret, frightened, and terrified. Many references have to do with what people are anxious and fearful about. Others with the promises of divine reassurance for those who are fearful or anxious. The message, quote, do not be afraid, runs across scripture with strength and persistence. So thoughts about uh, this first paragraph in our lesson this week about anxiety. Any, any, any concerns, any questions, anything pop into your mind as you, as you reviewed the lesson this week? Well, the, the phrase do not be afraid is almost universally when someone encounters a, a being from heaven. That's true. That's true. And so, other well, question, well, did God design us? It was it God's plan that we should experience fear? No. Um, after sin, uh, what happened? When, when did fear first manifest itself in the human condition? And Adam and Eve sinned. Yeah, they ran and hid because they were afraid. afraid. And, and as you think about fear and, and love, do you see any relationship? Are they related in any way? How are they related, fear and love? Inversely. So perfect love casts out fear. So as genuine love goes up, fear goes down. But what happens when fear goes up? Love goes down and selfishness becomes more, more profound. Um, is it, how do we understand the passages of Scripture that tell us to fear God? I actually got emails on this fairly regularly about people because in our class we emphasize how we shouldn't fear God. We shouldn't be afraid. And yet people email me and say, well, how do you explain the scriptures that say fear God? Yes. Um, you asked at the beginning if we had any questions. And this is kind of my big overall question. I think it relates directly. It seems to me that there is a couple of different kinds of fear because on the deep level I'm not afraid because I know God always takes care of me. But there's a kind of superficial fear. If I come around the corner and I see a skunk, or a bad man on a mask. I had this instinctive kind of um, emotional reaction. And I'm not sure, just thinking about bad experiences I've had in my life, I'm not sure if that's the same kind of fear that's that deep-seated fear that... I'm going to suggest to you that what you're describing there is part of the infection of sin. Evolutionary biologists would tell you what you described was adaptive, that it helps us survive. It's part of survival of the fittest and, and helps us. And I'm going to suggest, however, that that is actually part of the infection, this sense of apprehension, this sense of fear. I suspect when Adam and Eve were in the garden and they came around a corner and they saw a skunk, they didn't startle. They weren't afraid. They came around a corner and they saw a lion. They, didn't, they weren't afraid. They didn't startle. There wasn't fear. You see Eve's reaction to a talking serpent. 
She wasn't afraid to talk to that serpent prior to sin. As soon as they sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. So I think this idea, because what is the, if you think about the, the, the emotion that drives fear, what is the primary concern with fear? Concern with who? Self. Fear is directly an outgrowth of putting self, number one. I'm worried about what's going to happen to me. What's going to happen to me? Am I going to get hurt? Am I going to get harmed? Am I going to get exploited? It's all about me, fear, primarily. Yes? If Adam fell out of a tall walnut tree in the garden, would he have gotten hurt? If he would have fallen? See, that's a different question than fear, isn't it? Well, you don't want to fall out of a tree. You don't want to slip and fall. You know, you're fearful of falling. Well, see, this is, this is the classic argument people give, and I would suggest to you, do you know anything about the Mohawk Indians? Mohawk Indians, uh, historically, were... Um, uh, predominantly in the in the a union called the iron workers iron workers union they were um a, a large cadre of the people who helped build like the empire state building and these these large ta- back in the day before osha and safety requirements and if you ever watch on the history channel the uh, men working on that building they are thousands of feet in the air walking on six to eight inch i-beams and they're just jumping from one to the other up there in the air without any fear at all why because they're neurologically wired where they didn't have any fear of heights at all. The Mohawk Indians had no fear of heights. Didn't have... A newborn baby is afraid of falling. Uh, again, because a newborn baby is born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Okay, we're born in fear, born in selfishness. We're wired defective. That's why we have to be reborn. So, but my point to you about the fear of heights or fear of falling, do you have to be afraid of falling in order to have wisdom not to jump off a building? Do you have to be afraid of falling in order to know it's not wise to jump out of a walnut tree? No. Is it fear that keeps us from doing it, or is it wisdom? You say you don't have to have fear to avoid these things. You have to have wisdom. And so I don't think Adam and Eve had fear of these things. Now, whether they would have gotten hurt or not, that's a question that people debate. But let's say, assume they would. I don't think they had to have fear of it in order to, um, in order to avoid doing it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And we'll come back to the whole issue in a moment of what fear does. In fact, let's go to the second paragraph. Second, oh, the question on fear God, we didn't answer that. The Bible, when it talks about fear God, this is a, a, a fallacy or a problem with the English language. Um, the word fear in these texts really should be transmitted or tra- translated um, something like awe, admiration, respect, adoration, uh, be humbled by, be overwhelmed with. This is what it should be. It should not be anxiety, terror, dread, insecurity, um, apprehension. These types of emotions are not what the Bible's talking about when, when it regards God. And how do we know that for sure? Because in Revelation it says, fear God and give glory to him, right? So those who are to fear God are those who are to be giving him glory. And giving him glory means what? To reveal his character. And to reveal his character means we have his love in our hearts, right? Can we do that without his love in our hearts? Perfect love casts out all Fear. So we have a contradiction then. If we're, wait, wait, I've got his love in my heart and it's casting out all fear, but I'm to fear him. Wait, then I can't glorify him unless we redefine the word. So what's being cast out is apprehension, anxiety, dread, terror. That's being cast out. But our admiration, our respect, our adoration grows ever stronger. And so that's what it means to to fear God. Um, Second paragraph says, 
Yes, and why not, after all? Fear and anxiety have been part of the human existence since sin entered the earth. Anxiety or fear about what may happen is one of the most dangerous emotions for mental and physical health. A medieval legend tells of a traveler who one night met fear and plague on their way to London, where they expected to kill 10,000 people. The traveler asked plague if he would do all the killing. Oh no, plague answered, I shall kill only a few hundred. My friend fear will kill the rest. Winston Churchill and Roosevelt both said, there's nothing except fear itself. What do you think that means? Do you think there's truth in that? Can anybody give us an explanation? Let's see if we can't walk it through the steps of what fear does and see if, if the real problem isn't the things we're afraid of, but the fear itself. Did you know that fear, when you're afraid, it impairs physical growth? Fear activates the fear circuits, shunts blood out of your intestines and guts into your, into your bloodstream, into your muscles, so you have fight-or-flight energy. You can fight, you can flight when you're, in, when you're afraid. So, uh, studies of Iraqi children that are being raised in the Iraqi war zone compared to the children raised in the rural areas where there's not war, these kids are statistically and significantly measurably shorter than the kids growing in the safe zones because of the constant threat of anxiety and stress fear is impairing their physical growth. Notice, their physical growth is not being impaired by the fact that they don't have nutrition. They have enough food there. The food supplies are not being restricted. It's not being impaired because um, the enemy forces are coming in and uh, and tying them up and preventing them from eating or beating them. No, it's being impaired because of the fear itself. Fear is changing their physiology and and their ability to physically grow. Fear impairs intellectual growth. And you all have either known or had the experience of of somebody getting up in front of a group of people to give an announcement and they look out at the audience and they freeze. (laughs) What happens? Fear paralyzes prefrontal cortex. Or have you known somebody who was really intelligent and maybe you, you were in school with them and you studied with them and they really knew their stuff but they always did bad on exams. They had test anxiety. What happens? The fear paralyzes their ability. So they're not failing. They're not forgetting what they say because some external threat, the audience isn't standing up and saying... We don't want to listen to you. They're not being gagged. It's fear is paralyzing them. So they don't need to fear the audience. It's the fear itself. What about relationships? What happens to relationships as fear goes up? I'm afraid that I won't be loved. I'm afraid that they'll find someone else. I'm afraid they'll think that somebody else is more attractive than I am. And in a relationship, if you have that kind of fear, how do you treat your partner? With distrust. With with jealousy. With control. With monitoring. And what happens then? See, is the problem with the partner or is the problem with your fear? And what your fear then causes you to do in the relationship. See, there's nothing to fear except fear itself. How about fear and how about fear and spiritual growth? What happens to people who actually live in the dread and the terror of God? What does it do to the development of character if you actually live under dread and threat and fear of punishment constantly? Do you do you never feel worthy? Does anybody ever remember that state? You know, the, the three angels' messages when you were a kid? Okay, the, the recording angel monitoring everything you do, and there's, if, if every sin isn't confessed, you're going to be punished for it. Remember that, that sense of dread you grew up in in the church? At least, was I the only one? No. It causes you to be, what Ellen White describes, people who obey like this, become petty spies. They become legalistic, petty spies, making a bunch of rules and then monitoring everybody else who's breaking the rules because they're jealous and angry that I can't go out and eat on Sabbath and they get to. This kind of stuff. Yes. 
I truly believe, too, that if we're looking at a God who we think is vengeful and vindictive and angry and controlling, that in our own families we will treat our family members that way. And I think that's where abuse comes from. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up because the studies show that to be true. There's actually studies, sociologic studies, that look at, at families and religious beliefs. Those who have religiosity but without a spiritual love or development of other-centeredness, have a, it is a predictor for child abuse in the home and spousal abuse in the home. But those who are spiritual, meaning that they, they develop a sense of other-centered regard for other people, actually predicts less abuse in the home. So you're right, exactly. By beholding, we become cha- changed. How about fear and judgment? What happens to your judgment when you're afraid? Do you think you have better judgment or worse judgment? Some of you heard me tell the story of a, uh, and it's a true story, a chemistry professor in Texas uh, was running behind on her car payments and that uh, was in threat of being repossessed, a high school, high school chemistry professor. Two of her students were failing chemistry, and senior students, they weren't going to graduate. So she went to the two students and proposed that if they steal her car and burn it, she can then claim it on, uh, on her insurance, have the insurance pay off the car, protect her, and she will give them passing grades in chemistry. <laughs> they did. And they were all caught. Now they're all in prison. Then what was the motivation for doing that? What happened to her judgment based on fear? Fear caused her to think selfishly. Selfishness impairs judgment. Fear impairs judgment. Nothing to fear but fear itself. What about physical performance? This goes back um, to the question asked earlier about climbing a walnut tree. Physical performance and fear. I want you to imagine that in this room, on the floor, right in the aisle here, we've got a, a Olympic balance beam, four inches wide balance beam. Now, the majority of us wouldn't have any problem walking that balance beam, four inches wide here on the floor. You agree? On the floor. Yes, on the floor. Four inches wide. Now, it's, you're, you're about four inches off the floor. But you're four inches off the floor, and it's four inches wide. Most of us could walk that. Take that same balance beam, we put it 100 feet in the air with no safety net. No wind. We'll put you in a room so there's no wind to blow you. How many of you could still walk that balance beam? No way. You think, does, will, will your anxiety and fear impair your performance? Why? See, nothing to fear. It's the same four inches that you walked here with no problem. You see, when we're afraid, our physical performance is altered as well. There's nothing to fear. Fear is an emotion that's amygdala, right? And then the other wisdom is from a different part of the brain. Wisdom is prefrontal cortex. Physical performance, however, is really not out of the prefrontal cortex. Physical performance is coming out of the motor cortex. And the... um, And the... um, uh, Substantia nigra and other places where we, and, and the cerebellum, there's, there's like multiple different areas that work for physical performance. But the point is the fear impairs that, doesn't it? So what does chronic fear do? This is acute fear. What does chronic fear do? Well, as you mentioned, it activates the fight or flight response, which activates, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago now, our innate immunity. Remember the shotgun immunity when we get stressed? Shotgun immunity goes up, which is to protect us from any invaders of the fight or flight thing. If we get attacked by a lion and we get scratched, then we want our immune system ready to uh, protect us from any invaders that will come in and in form of bacteria infections. But this is a a very, just like a shotgun in your home, you might get the invader, but you get a lot of collateral damage. The, The innate immune system under stress causes collateral damage. We increase these inflammatory factors. And if they stay uh, stay activated over time, the inflammatory factors lead to metabolic illnesses like obesity and diabetes and heart attacks and strokes and so forth and ultimately damage the brain and lead to depression. 
Now, some people are more prone than other people to this types of fear issue. Some people biologically are more anxious, more worrisome, more stressed than other people. And I want to go through what are some of the contributing factors that contribute to some people being more vulnerable to this than other people. And there are two, two general contributing factors. One set of contributing factors are physiological, biological contributing factors. And the other set of contributing factors are what we would call psychological or spiritual contributing factors. And let's go through the physical ones first, the things that make somebody physically wired, their brain to be different, so that their brain is wired in such a way that they're more likely to be nervous, anxious, worried, fear-based people. Well, some of this you won't be able to do anything about, but if your mother was anxious and stressed when she was pregnant with you and had, because of her constant worry, constant stress, maybe she was in an Iraqi war zone. Maybe something like this was going on. So she was under constant stress. Her, her brain is releasing uh, stress steroids. Those stress steroids cross straight through the placental barrier, right into the developing fetal brain, and alter the fetal brain so that the alarm circuitry, the amygdala, is less capable of calming. That child will be born with a brain that's uh, more likely to be anxious and stressed and less able of turning off the alarm system. So it starts right in the womb with a stressed mom. Uh, And if that child is then born into the world and in early childhood development as a baby, if the child is not given attention, if it's not caressed, held, loved, cared for, if it's neglected, if it's not, um, you know, given that, that positive love, Lack of nurturance actually alters the developing brain. When a mother caresses the child, rocks the child, holds the child, nurses the child, it not only provides nutrients to the the physical body, it actually causes the alarm circuitry of the brain to alter gene expression, and it calms the alarm circuitry. So love, the love of the mom, the love of the caregiver, is altering physiologically all the way down to the genetic expression how the brain of this child is developing so this child will be less fearful and less anxious through life. But if that child doesn't get attention, doesn't get love, then it upregulates the alarm circuitry, and this child, for the rest of their life, will be more anxious and more worried and more stressed than if they'd had a loving mother or father, a caregiver, right to start with. Childhood abuse, childhood abuse, as you can imagine, will we'll fire up the, the fear circuitry. will cause it to be over, overdeveloped and over, um, uh, uh, oversensitive compared to children who grew up in in um, healthy homes. Traumas of any kind, and that includes as adults if we go through serious traumas, can cause a uh, upregulation of the fear circuitry so it becomes more sensitive from that point on. This is PTSD, people coming back from war, war settings. And alcohol and drugs. Uh, if your mother was using alcohol and drugs when she was pregnant with you, if you use alcohol and drugs, uh, then this alters neural circuitry and increases uh, anxiety. And we know, for instance, alcohol will alter the amygdala expression, altering gene expression, turn genes on, turn, turn genes off in the amygdala neural circuits so that when you stop the alcohol, you're more anxious, you're more stressed, you're more, and you need more alcohol to calm yourself. That's what happens. It's actually physiologically changing things in a negative way. Um, theatrical entertainment uh, activates fear circuits of your brain and impairs prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that comes and uh, helps relax the prefrontal cortex. There are certain genetic defects, and they can go both directions. Some will upregulate and cause more fear. There's a syndrome called Williams syndrome where the people are missing 25 genes on chromosome 7, and it causes these kids to actually have no fear. They're fearless. They have no fear of any kind. 
And, uh, and, and, and the reason for that is it alters the amygdala, the fear circuitry, where it doesn't react like it should. And so these kids have no fear. So we can go the other way. Sleep deprivation. When we're sleep deprived, we're more likely to be um, irritable, moody, and anxious, and less capable of, of calming ourselves, more reactive. These are all physical things that we can do to uh, affect our, our sense of fear and apprehension. Any thoughts or questions about that? Isn't it fascinating? Yeah. Do we see some of the biblical counsel, the counsels we've been giving and the wisdom for the counsels we've been given? Yeah. Psychological contributing factors to fear. Um, well, we, some of these we've already mentioned because they're not only psychological, they're physiological. And that is childhood abuse and neglect. Not only does it have the physical effects I went through, a child growing up in an abusive environment will have an altered sense of self. They will internalize the meaning of events in such a way that it causes them to anticipate more harm. They they learn to distrust rather than trust. They learn to anticipate uh, pain and rejection, and and so it upregulates their alarm circuitry, and they don't know how to calm themselves well. They have a distorted self-image frequently. And in our next lesson, we're going to do here in just a little while, we're actually going to go through a case of a young girl who had some issues in childhood, and we're going to walk through how, what it did to her, impact it had on family, and then God's, uh, God's uh, plan to, uh, and methods to help bring healing. Um, loving human oh, uh, trauma. We mentioned, mentioned the trauma. Trauma also has the physical effects. It also, also has the psychological stuff. People after trauma, well, Depending on the age, we'll internalize it differently. But even adults that are traumatized, why did God allow this to happen to me? I, I pray every day. I pay my tithe. I go to church. How could, how could I have been in this car wreck and had this injury? How, how, how is it that I'm, I'm suffering with this problem now? So it can alter the psychology based on the trauma. Theatrical entertainment not only has the neurobiological piece where you overactivate limbic system circuits, it has the psychological piece where it gives us bad values, bad um, modeling. We learn bad principles and unhealthy and distorted concepts about what's right and wrong from watching television. Um, false God concepts. False God concepts. Do false God concepts have a psychological impact to right, raise or lower fear? Yeah, I mean, particularly raise fear in this case. And physiological. And then that results in a physiologic one. As you change your thinking processes, that changes the physical aspect of what's going on with the brain. Relationship conflict. If you're in conflicted relationships where you're arguing and stressed and always at hostility, at war with people, this fires your fear circuitry, keeps you stressed all the time, causes inflammatory cascades, might increase your risk of diseases and obesity and brain damage, and when I mean brain damage, depression and neuroglial problems and so forth. Um, <clears throat> Dishonesty, selfish behaviors. Do you know when you're dishonest and you lie, it activates your fear circuits? As soon as you tell a lie, you begin worrying whether you realize it or not. Am I going to get caught? Are they going to find out? What happens if I get caught? Activates neurologically the fear circuitry. The fear circuitry causes this whole inflammatory cascade. And regardless of whether you're caught or not, you're already damaged. And then you begin to tell more lies and then you have the stress of worrying uh, which to keep track of all the lies you told and, and that you know it becomes quite quite convoluted unforgiving attitudes if we hold grudges if we're resentful we're bitter this activates the fear circuits and causes this whole inflammatory cascade as well so we just went through some a whole list of physiological and psychological spiritual things that, that make us more anxious and afraid what can we do what can be done 
to help somebody, to help us all, because we all, born in sin, conceived in iniquity, we all struggle with fear and anxiety. What can we do to resolve this? Thoughts. Is it too discouraging? (laughs) Is it too much? Well, target the contributing factors. Target the contributing factors. So if we have distorted God concepts, what can be done? You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We have to come to the true knowledge of God. Um, If we have conflicted relationships, what happens to anxiety in your own experience when you come to a reconciled relationship? When you come to experience peace with those you were in conflict with? When you come to experience yourself loved and valued? And you have trust reestablished in a relationship? What happens to your fear and anxiety? Up or down? Down. So reconcile relationships. Come to know the truth about God. Reconcile relationships. What happens if you have done something wrong? You've lied, you've stolen, it's eating at you, you worry about getting caught, and you finally take responsibility and you go make it right. You take ownership, you confess, you restore. What happens? More peace or less peace? Incredible peace. Yeah, the anxiety and fear goes away. What happens uh, if we stop using alcohol and drugs? If you don't know, the brain heals. I show you brain imaging scans. A year after uh, stopping the use, the brain is healing itself. So we get physical healing of the brain. Uh, we can stop stimulants like caffeine, which interferes with sleep and increases anxiety. Regular exercise actually produces um, brain chemicals that have a calming, relaxing effect. That's helpful. Regular sleep, of course, is important. How about if we engage in altruistic activities? If we do good for others. Have you ever had the experience of actually doing something for somebody, not for the purpose of recognition? See, that's doing for self. But for the purpose of helping someone. And and what do you experience after that? Do you get a greater sense of peace? Does fear go down? See, when we participate in God's kingdom of love and we're a giver rather than a taker, it calms the fear circuits. It's physiologic. Um, honest living, we just mentioned that. Um, and for those who, uh, who maybe had issues of childhood before, maybe mom was highly stressed or mom did alcohol drugs or they had a really difficult childhood before they were even old enough to make some of these decisions, and so they got a really messed up neural circuitry, then there are certain medications and psychotherapies that might be helpful for someone to get in to help work through and, and, and help stabilize uh, those fear and anxiety issues. Forgiving other people who've done you wrong. Have you ever held a, a grudge? And then finally, truly let it go and forgave. Did you ever, do you, do you remember the peace that came? The burden you finally stopped carrying around? Wasn't it great? Yeah, forgiving others. I received two emails in the last month. I'm going to share them with you because it goes to the issue of the God concept we hold. It says, this is, this is the first email. First of all, I'd like to say a huge thanks to you uh, for all your great work. I have recently committed my life to knowing God and carrying out his will. Your book and website have been paramount in helping me reach the, this decision because until I came across th- these insights into God's nature and the healing model of atonement, I had many conflicting ideas about God that kept me from fully trusting him. I'm a medical student, and I have been suffering from some pretty bad anxiety this year, particularly with my search for God and the truth. Uh, and the truth. But since I have discovered the truth about God and his characters revealed by Jesus, and I have spent time with uh, this God by reading his word daily, I have been noticing a real change in my heart and mind. As I learn to love others as God loves, my anxiety gets better and better. The Bible quote, perfect love casts out all fear, is so true and has changed my life completely. Isn't that great? Yeah. yeah. And then this one's a little shorter. I have been listening uh, to you for over two years. I really appreciate your weekly Sabbath school lessons and book. May the Lord bless you in, in many ways. I was raised in SDA church on a very rigid 
in a very rigid home full of rules. I know none of us have ever had that. And after listening to your lessons, I am learning to love God, Jesus, and the Sabbath instead of fearing them. Has anybody else had this experience? Isn't it true change your God concept? Coming to see God as Jesus revealed him to be takes away our fear. It's powerful. It really is. All right. Uh, let's go on to Sunday's lesson. And this is the first fearful experience when Adam and Eve ate the fruit. They ran and hid because they were afraid. Why did they become afraid? Was the f- source of their fear external to themselves or internal to themselves? Internal. Who were they running from? Themselves. They were running from themselves, trying to hide. Uh, objectively, who, who were they running from? God. Did they need to be running from God? Was God the enemy out to kill them for their disobedience? Was God the one that was seeking, or was God their friend? Wanting to heal, wanting to save, wanting to restore. Why were they running? Was there a T-Rex that suddenly jumped up in the garden that was chasing them? No. I mean, there there was not an objective threat in the garden to them. Other than unless you want to make Satan uh, an objective threat. But he he was still uh, pretty much on a leash. We don't see him in in the first conversations there with God um, in the middle of that conversation. They believed there was an objective threat through believing the lie that God was holding back from them. Yes. And so they were. They said, "I'm going to take it upon ourselves to become knowledgeable." And so now that we are, oh no, what is God going to do to us? So they believed the lies, and so that belief changed something in them that they thought. And so the fear originated in the change in their beliefs about God, not in the change of God. God was the same. God hadn't changed. Their beliefs about Him had changed. I want to read to you out of. Um, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 329. And this is speaking of the time when Moses comes down off the mountain after 40 days uh, up there with the Lord. He comes down off the mountain. The children of Israel had been involved in a, uh, a, a worshiping a golden calf and all this kind of stuff. And I want you to, to listen to, to Moses' attitude. Listen to what's happening with the people. It says, During the long time spent in communion with God, the face of Moses had reflected the, the, the glory of the divine presence. Unknown to himself, his face shone with a dazzling light when he descended from the mountain. Aaron, as well as the people, shrank away from Moses, and they were afraid to come near him. Seeing their confusion and terror, but ignorant of the cause, he urged them to come near, come near. He held out to them the pledge of God's reconciliation and assured them of his restored favor. They perceived in his voice nothing but love and entreaty. So, objectively, is there any objective threat to the people here? No. Moses is inviting them. It, it, nothing but, but uh, love and entreaty in his voice. Uh, I, I, giving the promise of God's reconciliation in favor. At last, one ventured to approach him. Too awed to speak, he silently pointed to the countenance of Moses and then toward heaven. The great leader understood his meaning in their conscious guilt, feeling themselves still under the divine pleasure. They could not endure the heavenly light, which had they been obedient to God, would have filled them with joy. There is fear in guilt. The soul that is free from sin will not wish to hide from the light of heaven. Amen. What do you think about this? Does it give us insight as to why Adam and Eve were running in the garden? Why they were afraid? Guilt. guilt. Have ki- ha- just think of your childhood. All of us think back to our childhood. Think of the time we disobeyed mom or dad. 
Did we experience fear? I know I did. <laughs> Might have been those willow switches. I'm not sure. <laughs> but, but, but truly, did I need to be afraid of my mom and dad? No. no. They were only out to help and protect me. There was no reason to fear them, but I was. I was very afraid because I was, was guilty. Um, that yeah. last sentence gives us, I think, more insight into the state of the wicked in the end. No question. No, exact insight as to why, why is it when Christ comes, his face, and he comes in, in fullness of his radiance, the, the, the earth shall be bathed in his glory, Isaiah tells us. Uh, the, the wicked will be destroyed by the brightness of his coming, it says. But as, as he comes in his glory, those of us that are, that are loving him and know him are transformed in, 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 in the twinkling of an eye and transported into, hev- into, into, the, into the skies to meet those who have passed in death before us, all us together in the air. But those wicked... They're running and hiding, crying for the rocks to fall on them. Why? They need to be afraid of God? Is Christ, as Graham used to say, two faces? He's smiling at us and he's looking mean at them? No. No. Same Christ. No, it's because of what's in them. What, What Dean said earlier, believing the lie still, holding to Satan's version of God. What they see is they see what Satan describes God as. That's what they see. They're distorted. Uh, a couple of hands, yes. When you do wrong, often there are consequences. For instance, you mentioned a switch. <clears throat> and that is a little bit scary. Even though you know it's for your own good, there are sometimes consequences that are kind of painful to deal with. And maybe that's not true at the very end. I don't know. But right now, you know, when you do something wrong, you get some <clears throat> issues <laughs> okay. to and, deal with. And again, as we talked earlier, the fear in those circumstances are generating from primary concern about self. Even when we've done something wrong, and, and, and when we initially make a mistake, do something wrong, we initially fear what's going to happen to us. When we have put it before the Lord, when we experience His grace, when we become repentant, then we're willing to go out and take responsibility and say, it doesn't matter what you do to me, I need to make this right. And the fear goes away. But it takes a while sometimes to learn that. But that's because we're born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We're wired self-centered. Yes, fear is part of the infection of sin. Yes. This situation shows up in human relationships all through the Bible and in our own lives. Absolutely. Uh, Jeremiah, uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, a person who's standing for the right is a silent rebuke to people who have guilt and um, makes them uncomfortable sometimes. Okay. And this is why, why Christ said those who are in the darkness don't want to come into the light. They want to destroy the light. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, additional layer here, as people experience this guilt and fear, it distorts their thinking, and they will actually project this out onto others, and they will say, oh, it wasn't me, it was the woman. She's the bad one, not me. Well, which really, well, God is really the bad one. And this leads to another layer of why we get so many distorted God concepts. Because we begin to see God in the same way that we think and believe about ourselves. In relationships, you mentioned relationships just now. I do counseling all the time. And frequently, a person who is cheating on their spouse believes that the one, who, the one they're cheating on is cheating on them. They project out their own dis- dishonesty onto the other one and constantly fears that the other one's going to cheat on them. Because they judge, this is what it means, judge not that you be not judged, the same measure you judge others, we measure it against you. It's basically saying that that the reason you get judged by the measure you judge others is because you basically judge others based on the condition of your own heart. 
And so this is why we get also so many distorted God concepts, because people are looking at God through the lens of their own twisted heart. All right, Monday's lesson. Abraham was afraid after so many years that the promise that God uh, about an heir would not be realized. Source of Abraham's fear. Was his source primarily concern for the gospel message and the Messiah to come? Or is his source about self and not having his own heir? What do you think? Oh, just keep that. I just, just thought about that. All right, John, Tuesday's lesson, John 14, 1 through 3. We all know this passage. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, I will come again and receive you. Unto myself, that where I am, you might be also. We all have learned that one. Um, first paragraph. Ask us to read that, and then ask us to read the first paragraph. These loving words encourage trust. Trust in the Father. Trust in Jesus. Because this is a trust that can set free the troubled heart from gazing at, future, at the future in distress. Jesus immediately takes the disciples' attention to the kingdom that he is preparing for them. In other words, no matter what happens to you here, no matter how bad things are, that is what you have waiting for you. Thus, trust in me and my promises. This is what Jesus said to them then and is saying to us now. What does it mean to trust God? Forget itself. Forget self, she said. In practical terms, I have patients in my office every day I'm treating with for anxiety disorders. And I ask them, do you believe in God? Yes. Do you trust him? Yes. And they're worried about their job. They're worried about their relationships. They're worried about their finances. They're worried about, should they worry about those things and trust God? How do you throw the, find that balance where we trust God and yet we are worrying. What do you think? I'm, I'm not here to cast stones. I'm here to, to analyze and understand. Yes? You have to understand that he is good. have to understand that God is good. Yeah, yeah I remember you say that. It, the first thing that popped in my mind when I was 19 or 18, something like that, in late high school, early college, uh, somebody was saying, you need to trust God to help find your future mate. Oh. And I thought, no, I, I don't want to marry somebody fat and ugly. <laughs> <laughs> See, I didn't trust him. I, I thought he'd pick somebody that wouldn't be suited for me because I didn't know he was good back then. I didn't. I thought he would give me somebody I didn't want. Now that I know he's good, I'd know, oh, he would only bring somebody that would make me happy and, make, and I would make them happy. I didn't have to fear that, but I did. So you're a good point. Yes? Um, you have to have a relationship with him in order to, gain, to understand that trust. Come on. Uh, absolutely. have to have a relationship with him. I think when we understand how much we are valuable in God's sight, that we, we will know he will take care of us. If he's given so much for us, he's not going to just let us go and forget us. He's going to do the best for us at all times. Yes, Lisa. It's maturity. You know, you've gone through the stages of understanding God's love, and until you reach that maturity, like as an adult, you know why your mom thanked you when you were little, but you didn't know that as a child. So it's a maturity level that you reach but how do you reach that maturity level? So changing a perspective, mm -hmm. changing one's perspective to see things in a different light. Um, would, would studying scripture and spending time with God help us mature our perspective? Can one spend a lot of time in scripture and go to church every week and not have a mature perspective? Yes. 
Can they see a God who is very punitive and legalistic? Would you say those who put Christ on the cross, those, those who let out in that, that activity, um, were they Bible students? Yes, they were. Yeah. Would, would they be considered religious folk? How many of them, if they were here today, would be voted in as elders of the church? The conference leaders. We do it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to throw stones here, but isn't it true there'd be outward performance and behavior merited their esteem in society? And they were voted in as the leadership of the church. And, and yet, did they know God? No. No. No, they didn't. Something was missing. Did they trust God? Clearly not. Clearly not. John, uh, John seventeen three. Jesus said, This is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ and thou sent. Knowing God, and we talk about where does trust arise. Think about the people in your life you trust. How is it you came to trust the people you trust? Evidence. By knowing them. By knowing them. I mean, was it hard when, when you actually get to know somebody personally that is trustworthy and you've come to know them in a relationship, do you have to try and trust them? If you've actually come to know somebody who is untrustworthy, you've dealt with them and they've lied, they've cheated, they've stolen from you, they don't keep their word, do you have to try to distrust them? No. No, isn't trust or distrust an outgrowth of the experience of how you're treated with the character of the one you're interacting with? Trust grows from a trustworthy relationship. Distrust grows when trust is broken by people lying, cheating, and so forth. Is God trustworthy? This is, of course, Paul's point in Romans. Even if everyone else is a liar, God, may you be shown to be trustworthy because you are. See God for who he is. Don't look at the people who claim to carry his name and judge God. Look to God. Look to Jesus, God in human form. That's where you look to see if God is trustworthy. Um, How can we know God better? How can we get this? This is uh, out of, um, oh man, what is the abbreviation CTBH? Christian... I can't remember. Anyway, it's CTBH 109. And uh, this is what she says. Experience is said to be the best teacher. Genuine experience is indeed superior to mere theoretical knowledge, but many have an erroneous idea of what constitutes constitutes real experience. Real experience is gained by a variety of careful experiments made with the mind free from prejudice, uncontrolled by previously established opinions and habits. Wow. All right, that's your starting point. You, You go into this, Without your previously established habits, opinions, or prejudices. That's a starting point. Hmm. The results are marked with careful solicitude and an anxious desire to learn, to improve, and to reform on every point that is not in harmony with physical and moral laws. I'm going to tell you in my recent discussions, what I have discovered is that the, the, uh, the majority of people who take the theological approach to studying Scripture discount the physical laws, discount inc- incorporation of science. Ellen White says in other places that there are three threads of truth that when rightly understood, all three perfectly harmonize. That is Scripture, science, and our experiences. Rightly understood, there's a perfect harmony. In our class, we try to, to understand all three, all three of those and bring them into harmony. When I'm, the discussions I've been having recently, I, ha, I have been told directly that the experience in science uh, don't need to be included. We just want to go with what the Scripture says by itself. 
And this is one of the reasons we can come up with such erroneous ideas of what the Scripture says, because it's, it's not consistent with the laws of God's universe. So, Ellen White, actually, careful experiments, consistent in harmony with the physical laws and moral laws. That which made many term experience is not experience at all. It has resulted from mere habit or from a course of indulgence thoughtlessly and often ignorantly followed. There has not been a fair trial by actual experiment and thorough investigation with a knowledge of the principles involved in the action. Now, does this sound like typical Bible study? It's not typical Bible study. Typical Bible study is theoretical. What I do in my practice is not theoretical. It, it, it has to work. You have to apply it. You have to see when you believe this or take that action, there's a consequence to it. And you can see the consequence in lives and hearts and minds. Because God made his universe to run on certain laws and principles. We understand those and apply them. Healing and, and restoration comes. When we violate them, there's a direct consequence for that. So we have to incorporate these other threads. Experience, which is opposed to natural law, which is in conflict with the unchangeable principles of nature, is not to be relied upon. Superstition arising from a diseased imagination is often arrayed in opposition to reason and scientific principles. The many, to many a person, the idea that others may gainsay what, has, what he has learned by experience seems folly and even cruelty itself. But there are, more er- there are more errors received and held through false ideas of experience than from any other cause. There are many invalids today who will ever remain such because they cannot be convinced that their experience is not to be relied upon. I see this in my practice. I have people who are so suggestible that they believe something's wrong with them because they've had an experience of a gas bubble going through their gut causing a sharp pain through their chest. And then they go, oh no, something's wrong. And they have this imagined problem and it activates the fear circuitry. And the fear circuitry will suppress dopamine and endorphins and encephalins, which will cause a sense of pain and dysphoria. And, and that only reinforces the belief that something's wrong. And because they go by this experience rather than by evidence and truth. In religion, how many of us in our spiritual development have practiced these methods of trial and experiment? And I'm going to tell you, and, and what we try and do in here, God's principles are to be applied to our lives here and now. If you apply God's principles to your life, do you think it results in more damage and destruction over time or more healing of, of character, mind, relationships, and so forth? But, but what makes it hard is that when we begin to apply the principles, it's usually uncomfortable. Our experience, it hurts. Uh, someone going to physical therapy, Russell, for the first time may have to put weight on, that, on those legs uh, that have been immobilized for six weeks and stretch ligaments that haven't been stretched. And it's, it's not comfortable necessarily in the beginning. It may be uncomfortable. Somebody with a cavity going to the dentist to get that thing drilled uh, may be uncomfortable. Doesn't mean it's bad. Same thing with our characters and our spiritual development. Begin, bringing God's principles to bear when we're used to living outside of them may feel bad at first. And so people go, my experience tells me this is bad. It's not bad. It's good. And I have to convince people of this all the time. All righty. Um, oh, and then... So we believe things that go against natural law, against the way God designed things to run. 
What happens to our security, our sense of safety, our fear and anxiety? For instance, if we believe that, in fact, God is arbitrary, if we believe the traditional view, not that God has created his universe to run on laws, and when you violate those laws, there's a natural consequence to it, but instead we believe that God is the imposer of law, and as such, he has to enforce arbitrary or imposed penalties upon us. If you believe that about God, what happens to your anxiety? What happens to predictability? Does predictability give you security or insecurity? Security. Security. See, gravity, very predictable. I let my pen go, we all know what's going to happen. Predictability gives us security. If you never really know what's coming next, there's this sense of uncertainty because there's no predictability, that drives anxiety. This idea of what's traditionally taught in Christianity puts God in the position of being somewhat unpredictable. When we understand it's based on the way he designed things to run, and it's a constant, it never changes. It brings security. It brings predictability. This superstitious type of beliefs that are often in many religions of the world increase our anxiety and, and, and drive falsehoods in our thinking. And this also happens with people with anxiety disorders. If I don't touch the door seven times before I leave, then something bad's going to happen today. So I have to touch the door seven times. Then I have to touch the car door five times. And I have to you know, count to three before I you know, take my shower. And, and all these things we have to do. Or thoughts like, nobody loves me, I can't do anything right, God doesn't care. If we have those beliefs, what happens to our anxieties? Up or down? So yes. How do you treat people like that? I mean, that's... The truth, honestly. You have to teach them how to examine the evidences and to embrace and choose Neurologically speaking, what's happening is limbic system circuitry is causing anxiety, which um, not having thought through, but just reacting to, forms beliefs that the people hold to. I believe I'm no good. I believe I'm ugly. I believe this and so forth. That reinforces more anxiety, which causes more negative beliefs, and it's a vicious cycle downward. Um, when you begin presenting truth, that's dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which, if you uh, do this well, will cause what's called cognitive dissonance there will be a conflict between the evidence before them and their feeling or pre, pre-held belief. At that point, they have to make a choice, which is anterior cingulate cortex. They have to choose, which am I going to value and believe? And the anterior cingulate cortex is the neurologic heart. As a man believes in his heart, so is he. And so if you choose the truth with the anterior cingulate cortex, and you choose to apply that, it doesn't immediately... Um, um, degrade all the previous neural circuits that have fired for years causing these fearful experiences. But what it does do is it changes the perspective so that when they rise up again in the future, you now have a different position that you're approaching them from. You're not approaching them in the position of, I'm, I believe this to be true, I recognize it's not true, and this is historic neural habit patterns that are firing that will be eventually um, degraded on a, on a cellular level with time. Yes? You know, this is New Year's Day. <laughs> I'm thinking about what I'm going to journal this year. And there's a study about people who have been in a, a pilot program where they did every night for three months, they journaled things that made them happy that day. And they said even after they stopped three months later, the effects lasted for years and years. That's right. It alters the neural circuitry to, to focus on. This is the way we're to have a thankful heart, right? Rejoice. What does Paul tell us we should focus on? It, 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 what you think about. This is why television is so devastating. What you spend time thinking about, watching, focusing on, alters the way your brain is, is, is physically structured. And if you write it down, write the truth down. It reinforces it. That 
helps you to remember it. Now, I, I got to say, you notice that in the study that you, that you just described, it was something that they were thankful for, mm-hmm. which means they had to choose something that they genuinely believed or had thanks for. It's not journaling positive I'm a good person, I'm happy, I know the Lord loves me, but you don't believe it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can stand, and, and I call this blowing smoke. Okay, you can stand in front of the mirror and tell yourself how wonderful you are, but a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Okay, you can say nice things that this kind of fluff psychology repeat seven times to yourself that you're a good person every day. It won't have any impact if in your heart you don't believe it. But what you described, they actually had to select something they were genuinely thankful for. That's why it had impact. We have to believe it in our hearts in order to have the benefit from it. Does that make sense? Okay, Wednesday's lesson uh, talks about the Sermon on the Mount. And it says that we can gain some lessons from studying Christ's Sermon on the Mount. And the first lesson, it suggests that we are to keep things in perspective, that God will provide. God will provide for our needs. What do you think about that? Well, that's what I was going to say a minute ago. You know, truth is, God is good. He wants to do good things for us. But the other truth is, He doesn't force us against our will. And so sometimes I get in this thing of, well, does that mean he's daily doing things for me? Can I believe that I'm not going to, you know, we've had everything go wrong in the house this year. Was that God or was that Satan? How involved does he get in the daily parts and how do I trust him in the little things where I'm seeing, you know, money go out the window or whatever? How, how do you get there? Anybody else have that experience? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so what is that? Yeah, guys, what do you think? Great, great point. Yeah, what do you all think? Think about how you've been led in the past. We have nothing to fear for the future, except we forget how the Lord has led in the past. You've heard this. This, this is from Ellen. That's, I think there's truth in that. How does that, how does that help deal with the question here? From the evidence, you know that he's going to continue. Well, doesn't God tell us forever promise there is a condition that we need to meet or... Um, and so, if I were just going from my life and this was happening to me, I'd want to look at my closeness with God and my dependence on Him. Am I paying my tithe? Am I giving to... What you're suggesting is a common theology taught in America. No, but I mean, and even if my, my job that I'm having, if I'm not having enough money to pay for it, even the job I'm working at, like someone said, if you're working that many hours, that hard at a job, and you're not making any more than you're making, you need to change jobs. And like maybe I've inherited a job from my father and so or parents, and so I think I have to keep in this, even though I'm losing money all the time and I'm having, but I'm just going to keep in it because. And so these are the same things about our habits in our life. Are we really? We need to look at. Are we really depending on God? Now, those are two different things you raised there. Mixed them, but let's let's separate them out. Both good points. Both good points. Second one is easier, I think, to deal with, and that is, we're responsible for the choices we make. If I'm in a job that is uh, is 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 exhausting and tiring and doesn't provide for my needs, I have the freedom to choose to leave that job. And if I choose to stay, you know, uh, that's on me. It's not on God. So we're, we're responsible for our choices. It's because the same thing is what's happening in my life and my relationship with God. It's not as easy for me to outline that choice. But I'm just saying, if I'm having difficulty meeting my bills, but this, I'm not talking about the things going wrong. I'm just talking about if I'm having difficulty paying for that, I need to see where in my life I'm not I'm spending too much money or... Uh, 
where my heart really is. There's a second element that you raise, though, that has truth in it that gets twisted into a distortion. And that is, yes, we have a responsibility. If we violate God's laws in our life, we take ourselves out of harmony with him and, 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 and put barriers up to his blessings in our life. There's truth in that. There's no question. But where it gets distorted is those who are having adversity, they must be doing something wrong in their life for this adversity to come. And if they would take inventory and find the part, part they're doing wrong, then they could get back in harmony with God. That can be a lie. That's the health, wellness gospel, and it's distorted. We look at the book of Job, which teaches us this. Job was perfect and righteous in all his ways. Terrible adversity came, and it wasn't because he had taken himself out of God's kingdom or out of practicing God's methods in his life. So it is true that we can do that, but just because we have adversity doesn't mean we are doing that. So we have to have discernment. Okay, great. But are you not going to, what choices, are, is that not one of the things that you're going to look at? Where am I got my heart? Where have I got my money going? Where, and, and, and where is, and why am I making enough money? Why am I not making enough money? And so these are things to me that are just really deep soul searching, but it's just like if I'm going to change a habit. And so I think we're trying to discern the difference between where our responsibility lies and if we're fulfilling our responsibilities that God gives to us and where we turn over to God things that are not ours to be responsible for. And as I understand it, we're responsible for the decisions we make in governance of ourselves with the wisdom God has given us to live in harmony with his methods and principles. We are not responsible for outcomes. How things turn out are not up to us. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were responsible whether they would bow or whether they wouldn't bow. That's their responsibility. Bow down to the idol, don't bow down to the idol, right? How things turned out from that point out, they couldn't control. They said to Nebuchadnezzar, we know our God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow, because that's our responsibility. And so our challenge is to trust God with outcomes. I want to just close with this with thought in Matthew, um, this idea of keep things in perspective God will provide. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 9, 10, and 21, and 22, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray, uh, will betray and hate each other. For then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and is never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. The point being is, you can be doing all your responsibilities, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fulfilling your good, and the Lord hasn't promised that he will uh, take us out of adversity. What he's promised is that adversity is going to come. But he will be with us, and so he provides for our mental and spiritual well-being. But that doesn't always mean that financials will always be provided. Or even will be protected from death. Paul was beheaded. All the apostles except John were, were, were martyred. Many martyrs through the histories. Um, but, but he provided for their spiritual well-being, ultimately. And sometimes he also provides for physical well-being, too. We're already two minutes over. Well, wait, actually, no, we have one more minute. Go ahead. Well, adversity comes, but it isn't necessarily from God. That, of course. I, yeah, was I suggesting it was for God? Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Yes, adversity comes, and adversity comes because what was said earlier in class, that those in darkness hate the light. And those, who us, those of us who are walking closer and closer into God's will, made more in harmony with his circle of love, uh, living more fully his methods and principles, shining more clearly, has become under more vicious attack. Satan hates it. He hates it, and he stirs up his, his agencies to try and stop it. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to come and study. And we thank you for uh, being with us today. We pray that you will take the truths that we've learned, help us apply them to our heart, fulfill our responsibilities, and trust you with the outcomes that we can walk in peace. We pray in your holy name. Amen.